Good morning. Um, open up your Bibles or your electronic devices to Acts 22. Acts 22. I want to read um, Acts 22 where we left off. Okay. Um, and then we'll pray. But on the next day, so verse 22, uh, excuse me, verse 30, Acts 22, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Apologize. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this is a reading of God's word. Let us pray. Um, we remain in your presence. There's nowhere else we'd rather be, quite honestly, Lord. But thank you that you allow us into your presence as sinners because of Jesus. That we can stand secure, that we can be assured that our salvation is for sure, that we stand justified before you because of Jesus. And it is my desire, Father, that your people would be encouraged as they see their Savior once again this morning. Not just to sing about Him, but to actually believe Him. To take Him at His word. And I pray, Father, that You would be pleased to open ears and eyes here this morning. I know that not everyone here knows where they will go. Some even believe that they will be with You in heaven, but don't really understand what that means. And so I pray, Father, that today that would be clear. 
that those that walk in not knowing who Christ is would walk away knowing who he is. But that won't happen unless you soften hearts. That won't happen unless you make the soil of their hearts fertile for the gospel seed. And I pray for your people once again, Father, that they would believe Jesus, that they would treasure him, that this wouldn't just be one more message, one more off, but on the contrary, that they would be encouraged as Jesus encouraged Paul, that we would walk away knowing that you are the living God and that you are with us, our shepherd and our king. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Many of us have heard that expression, if something matters to you, it's worth fighting for. Right? Some of you know what that means. Some of you have used it. Some of you have had that said to you, have had that repeated to you. And in reality, and it's not just simply an expression that means, you know, it's a call to arms. You know, you have to go fight, take up arms, and all of a sudden go uh, down with a battering ram. No. All it's simply saying is that if something is of value to you, you want to fight for it. Your marriage, your children, your work, whatever it might be, if it's important to you, you are going to fight for it. Now, one of the things that it's been said to me, and I don't know because I don't like running, okay? I'll play sports, I'll run up and down a basketball court, I'll play soccer, I'll go up and down, I'll play a couple games, but running just for the sake of running, not my thing. But I've been told by my wife, and she's, she's used to train for triathlons, and she says, there's this moment where as runners, you get this, this runner's high. I don't know if you have any runners here, um, but I've never been able to confirm that because I don't do it. But they say that there's a moment where you hit a wall, right? And it's, it's just really that mental battle, right, where you just want to stop, especially if you're doing a marathon or a half marathon. I tried, I, I tried doing a half marathon, it didn't go too well. <clears throat> it wasn't Disney, that was horrible. And my wife, you can ask her about the story. Um, but one of the things is that you hit this wall, but then all of a sudden you get, if you push through it, you're able to actually get into this high where you're able just to coast. And all of a sudden it's just like this, I don't know if it's a second wind, whatever it might be, but you start going. And it's very similar to that when it comes to trials. When we get into trials, sometimes we immediately want to go ahead and come back. We want to recoil. We want to, you know, maybe get into our fetal position and just kind of, I don't want to deal with that. I'm not a confrontational person. I don't like dealing with mess. I just don't want to deal. And we go in another direction. But sometimes we have to go ahead and push through those trials. It's not easy. It's hard. But we have to persevere. Now, how do we do that? If you guys ever been uh, weightlifting or if you've ever done any form of weightlifting or, or, or weight training, if you're in competition, there's people that will tell you, you it, it's a mental game. It's a mental game because you have to, like, they'll just tell you, your trainer will tell you, there's people that are working 10 times harder than you. And you have to go ahead and, and find what is going to take you to that edge or to push through it. Because quite frankly, who wants to go ahead and just squat 500 pounds? Who wants to go ahead and just bench? I know a lot of people want to bench, but who just wants to go ahead and do that and put your, put your body through this grueling regimen? It's nasty. But you do it, right? And now, of course, hopefully the outcomes will, will uh, prove themselves to be uh, worth it. But we have to push through. Mentally, we have to push through. Now, why do I mention this? Because that's exactly where Paul is at. Paul has been going, and, and, and we've been going through Acts, and throughout this entire study in Acts, the Lord is doing something. And what is he doing? He's building his church. Now, 
we're in Acts 23. It's been quite a couple of weeks since I last went through the last text. But in terms of timeline, this wasn't happening in terms of two-week period. This is events that are happening one after the other, right? And one of the things that we have to be mindful of is that Paul, in a couple of chapters, just not too long from where we are now, it's going to be it for him. The greatest missionary that the world had known at that time is no longer going to be on earth. He will be martyred. Do we understand what's happening here? Now, what's the beautiful thing? And of course, we think of, oh man, Paul. You know what's beautiful is that the gospel didn't stop with Paul. He went and he pursued and he pushed through every trial. He pushed through every trial, as we're going to see, because the gospel mattered. The gospel mattered. So, in the terms of the last message that we spoke of is, yeah, trials come with platforms, but one more thing now that we have to understand is that trials are not about us. Trials are not about you. They affect us and they impact us indirectly. But ultimately, trials are not about you and me. What do you mean? They're not about you and me. They're about God. They're about the one who gave his life for his sheep. How do we now, in the middle of our trial, communicate that, yes, it's a gospel, it's a gospel opportunity, but ultimately, sometimes indirectly, it's for us to remember that he is God and I am not. And we have to remember these things in light of everything. Now, just take, take a step back and, and look at Paul. You know who he's getting opposed by right now? To give you the context for those of you that are joining us now. Paul is getting opposed by who? Not the Romans. He's getting opposed by the Jews. His own kinsmen. And you know something about the Jews in that famous, those famous chapters in Romans 9 that everybody talks about, oh, God's sovereignty and election and, you know, and guess what? At the beginning of chapter 9, you know what Paul says? Paul says, I wish I was accursed. I wish I could be cut off from Christ for my kinsmen. That's how much he loved his Jewish people. That he would, he would be willing to go ahead and be cut off from Christ so that they could come to know Christ. And those are the very ones that are opposing him. It wasn't the Romans. The Romans are just doing their legal because the Jews are bringing this, this, this charge or whatever, whatever it is. He doesn't even know what's happening. But it's, it's that. And, and so now we, we, we get into this part of our text. And what can we possibly learn from this? Because now it's the Sanhedrin. Next message is going to be the governor. Then, you know, Festus. And it's going to go on and on. And so we're going to keep on seeing Paul before different people until he gets to Rome. So what do we get out of this? And my understanding, and again, this is not the... So other people have probably preached and have gotten other points. But my points are only two this morning. Number one, to remind you and me that we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And number two, to remind us that our Savior stands with us to the end as we fulfill our ministry and calling. He's going to stand with us. Now, the first point. Really? Our trial? Like that's...
Tell, tell me something I don't know. <coughs> problem is that it seems obvious. But that's usually the problem, right? Things that seem obvious are the things that we tend to forget. And wh why do I say that? Because when, when you're going through a trial, what's usually the question that goes through your mind? Why me? Why me? If it were that obvious, you wouldn't be asking that question, right? You immediately will go into your theological positions and say, oh, of course, we live in a fallen world, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I, but we don't. We don't get into our theological because when we're living life on this side of heaven in this fallen world and things happen to us that we're not happy with, then don't agree with the things that we expect God to do for us. Then all of a sudden, what happens? Why me? But I. But I've been serving you. But I've been going to church. I've been leading my family. I've been, I've been teaching. I've been reading the catechism. I've been reading scripture to them. Why? I've been faithful at work. I'm, I'm doing. I'm not late. I don't steal. So why am I going through what I'm going through? Because we live in a fallen world. <laughs> There's no other way to slice it or dice it. It's, it's exactly that. But we forget that. And then all of a sudden someone reminds you, Oh, by the way, remember what Jesus said? Be a good cheer. Take your heart. You will have tribulation in this world, but I overcame it. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I forgot that we will have tribulation in this world. Sometimes we think the tribulation is for somebody else, it's just not me. Everyone else is going to go on a trial. Everyone else is going to go through a trial. Not, not me. I've been good. I'm supposed to be blessed. Just on this past uh, Friday, picking up my wife from the airport, I purposely put on the Christian station. <laughs> a uh, sermon on, uh, on Sirius XM to have my children listen to a famous pastor. Pastor, like, you know better than that. Well, to learn. What, what does it sound like? I didn't say anything. I just let them listen to it. They didn't even know what I was doing. And surely enough, within, within minutes, they're like, what is he saying? What is he saying? Not a word of sin. They were just mistakes. When you make mistakes. You see, you see what happens when all of a sudden, it seems, they seem similar, they seem similar, they seem synonymous, but they're not. A mistake is me taking the wrong exit. Sin is sin before God. And that's where things are. Now, as a sinner, what happens? Now, I'm not trying to parse, and, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to say I'm better and I'm preaching that I'm way better than Joel Osteen because I'm not. Don't, I'm not trying to say, all I'm simply saying is, truth matters. And we have to be perceptive to these things because the world will tell you that you are meant to be blessed. You are God's child. You are His chosen race. You're a royal priest. I mean, you should be blessed. Why are you going through these things? And the fact of the matter is you live in a world. And you need to go ahead and remember that at the cross. I, I was just thinking, we were doing Facing the Enemy just a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, Dayron, it's not on the notes. But, um, and I was telling my kids, you have Sinclair Ferguson. His message contrasted to Joel Osteen's. If the enemy comes, oh, I'm a child of the chosen most king, uh, uh, the most high God. I'm, I'm a daughter, I'm a son. And he's like, that's what you need to tell the, en the enemy. Sinclair Ferguson was saying the opposite. He's saying, you're right. As a matter of fact, I'm worse than that. But my Savior, 
See the difference? See the difference? That's, that's what we're talking about. That's why it's so important that we understand and grasp, grasp the truth. And Paul needed to understand these things, specifically in the context of where he's in. Because it's not looking good for him. He's just getting transferred from one point to the other. He, just gave, he was given the opportunity to go ahead and share his testimony before the mob. Silence. Finishes. Right back at him. I mean, they're going after him. So much so they take him to the barracks. Now they're taking him to the Sanhedrin. And this is where he finds himself now. This confrontation between Paul and the Sanhedrin. And it's, and it's, and it's troubling because the Sanhedrin, as we just read, the Sanhedrin is made up of the high priest. Ananias being the high priest. In essence, the Sanhedrin is like the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. It's the court of justice for the Jews. That's what the Sanhedrin is. And just like we have a similar court of justice, right, uh, the Supreme Court, and you're going to have your justices and all that, but you have a chief justice, very similar. The high priest is kind of like that chief justice. But this Sanhedrin is divided. You have Sadducees and you have Pharisees. And we're going to get there in a second. But Paul immediately comes up with something. Now, my first point is our testimony matters. Because of what Paul says, our testimony matters. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, our testimony, don't worry about polishing up your testimony. When we do interviews and those that want to, do member, and want to become members here at the church, one of the things we tell them, look, you have to share your testimony. You don't have to polish up your testimony. Yes, be wise. Maybe if you're sharing your testimony with a younger crowd and you have maybe a, a harsh past, well, maybe you, you need, I'm not saying you have to sidestep, but be, be wise in how you communicate those things to a young mind. But, guess what? You don't need to polish it. Because that's precisely what the testimony is. I'm messed up. You are messed up. You might be looking at me and I'm looking at you. And I don't know your history and you don't know mine. But the Lord does. I'm not here to judge. But the point is that the Lord knows. And if He knows, and He's accepted us, and He tells us in Isaiah, come as you are. Come as you are. Don't worry about getting prim and proper. Don't worry about putting on your Sunday best. Don't worry about faking it till you make it. Come as you are. Kids, even at your age, you can come as you are. The gospel is not for adults. The gospel, as a matter of fact, is pretty simple. So much so that even a little child can believe in Jesus. They might not be able to respond to all the theological questions that you may have for them. But what they do know is that I'm a sinner. And that apart from Jesus, I'm not going to be in heaven. Because only righteous people make it to heaven. Only those that are forgiven confess and repent of their sins and, and cling to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those will be saved. Many times we, we mistake our, our blessings for God's love. Right? Oh, God must love me. Don't mistake His common grace. And somehow think, oh, well, I'm, I must be a child of God. No. That is not what John says, at least. What does John say in his gospel? First chapter. 
who are the children of God? Look it up. It's not just those that are blessed. Oh, because you got that promotion and you prayed that you got that promotion. Oh, that, that means that he must, he must be for me and not against me. Not necessarily. It's only if you are in Christ. And even, because the Lord is that kind of God, that He even makes the sun shine on the unrighteous and the rain on the righteous. Go figure. But that's the kind of God that we have. That's the Father that we have. And Paul is understanding this. It's not about you know, just having a polished testimony. Paul's perception up until this point is that he, in good conscience, has lived before God. Now, I want to take a second here to really focus on this. I, know, I, believe, I think I heard it from the back. Tony, correct me if I'm wrong. He mentioned Coram Deo this morning, right? Yeah? You guys were paying attention? What is Coram Deo? It's a Latin phrase that means that before the face of God. That's what it means in Latin, before the face of God. Now, what Paul is saying here, that he's lived his life in good conscience before the face of God. Now, is it just simply before the face of God, like under his presence? No. It takes a little, it's actually a bit more than that. It's, yes, living before the face of God, but also living under the authority of God for the glory of God. That's what Coram Deo means. It's not just me being cognizant that I'm before God and He's seeing and He's, and he's, all, he's omniscient, He's all-seeing, He's all-knowing, and I'm always before Him. Yes, that's true. And praise the Lord, that's true. But it's more than that. Because I was aware of that in my past as a religious, as a Roman Catholic. I understood those things. I was afraid of God but I wasn't living under the authority of God. Very different. And that is what Paul is talking about. He's like, before God, I have lived in good conscience. This conscience, which means this good moral conduct, this moral conduct. Now, and but it's very important that you also understand, conscience isn't always good. All of my conscience tells me. Your conscience must be informed. You have to understand that. And there's such thing as an evil conscience. You can read Hebrews 10, and you can see that in Hebrews 10. Right before the famous, oh, everybody quotes Hebrews 10 because, oh, don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. But just three verses before that, what does Paul, well, 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 we believe the writer, uh, Paul, we don't know who the writer is, but who the writer of Hebrews would say, yeah, you have an evil conscience. So we have to make sure that we are aware of these things. Now, what is the application here? If our testimony matters, what happens when we blow it? What happens now? There's no recourse? There's no solution? I know you guys, some of you have blown it this week. Some of you have blown it this morning. Guess what? Go to the cross. Go to Jesus. Because that's exactly what... Sin is sin. We're not just committing mistakes. We're not just saying, oh, God, I made a little mistake here. No. I sinned. Forgive me. And the beautiful part about that is that you get to experience and understand once again what grace and mercy are like. When a holy God forgives a sinner 
who repents and then extends his grace to start over and make things right. That's the beauty of, 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 of all of this in your testimony. Your testimony matters. But when you do blow it, and you will, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay that you just you know, do it high-handedly, but if you do it, remember that you have the cross. Remember that you have a Savior that you can go to. But then the other part is that it's not just that your testimony matters, it's also the other part. Don't expect everyone to go ahead and receive your testimony. What do I mean by that? Look at Ananias, the high priest. Orders Paul to be struck in the mouth. Ananias, to my knowledge as a high priest, should know the law, right? And he orders him to get struck. Paul knew that. That's why Paul says what he says. That's exactly why. And we're going to get there in a moment. Now, Ananias, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian in his book Antiquities, he doesn't describe Ananias as this righteous man, devout. In a, in, no. He was actually described as a thief. Ananias was corrupt as a high priest. Ananias would actually steal from the common priests the tithes that were given to them. That's who Ananias was. And so, this man is not righteous in any way or in any stretch of the imagination. But here's a fact. His perception is that Paul is wrong. And that perception is the one that he's acting upon. Because perception is reality. I didn't write it. It's just, it's just what it is. Perception is reality. And Ananias perceives that Paul is wrong. Strike him. What do we do? What are you going to do when people don't take your testimony? Do you blow a gasket? What do you do? Do you force it down their throat? No. Some of you know because some of you have had family members like that. They don't want to accept because they know all your history. They know all your past. Like, bro, get out of here. <laughs> you're, you're, go, 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 go somewhere else man, with that story because, yeah, yeah, well, these Christians, I've seen them before. Oh, remember, or such and such cousin or such and such aunt. Yeah, they, they, they became Christians. And look, look where they're up. They're back in drugs and doing X, Y, and Z. And they refuse to accept that. You know what? And that's okay. Because your job is not to convince them. All you can share is, I am messed up but I've come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now that doesn't mean that I go ahead and I just simply sin with a high hand. I desire to pursue Him and I'm going to mess up along the way, but I trust that when I do sin, I will make things right. That I will repent and seek Him and His forgiveness. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to aim at. Don't let others rejecting your testimony keep you from sharing the gospel with others. No. Oh, well, they rejected my testimony, so I'm going to dust off my feet. No. There could be another opportunity. Maybe that time wasn't the time. And maybe the Lord might give you another opportunity to go ahead and water that seed that you, that you had shared months ago or years ago. It happened to me. I didn't know. I used to get invited in Chicago to youth groups to go play basketball. That was the, the whole thing. I didn't know. They were just singing like these Maranatha songs. I'm like, what is this? I was just here to play basketball. That's all I wanted to do on a Friday night. And next thing you know, years later, the Lord reminds me of that. Our next door neighbors who are taking me under the priest, says, oh, we're going to go ahead and play some basketball. I was getting the word. I was getting the word. 
unbeknownst to me. And it's crazy to think that that family, Mexican, which is very, very rare for a Mexican family to be evangelical. Very rare. Because you know they're very Roman Catholic in their, in, the, in, their, in, in, what, in their beliefs. Any Hispanic family, you know, and they have all the, all the Virgin, uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe, and they have all the things that they believe in. And yet this family, what are the chances that here growing up in Chicago, my next door neighbor, they knew Christ. But that's the way God had it. And I look back upon it, I'm like, God, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't by accident. And some of you know what is that. Share your testimony. Keep going. Keep going. Your testimony matters. But when people reject it, keep sharing it. It's okay. Because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. Now pray that the Lord gives you wisdom to, to share it. And, and, and be patient with them. Because you too were there. And I was there. But look at Paul's, look at Paul's response in verses 3 and 5. It's funny because sometimes we think, Oh, Peter. Peter's the, the one that's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's the impulsive one, right? You remember when Jesus was going to get arrested, what did Peter do? Gets a dagger, chops off the, the ear of the, of the guard. What are you doing? That's Peter. It's funny because I, I, I laugh. Because in many ways, this is, Paul's response to me was, was pretty interesting. Why, why would he say that? I mean, he just simply goes off, off the dome, right off the top. Man, you're a whitewashed wall. You know, God is going to judge you. Like he doesn't, he doesn't think like in, this, in that moment now. I understand what he's saying. But what's hard is that in, to the Corinthians, this is what he writes it to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4.12 he says, And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. It doesn't seem like Paul is blessing. His response does not seem like a blessing to Ananias. You know, he's not saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you and have his face shine upon you. He's not saying that. Okay? He's actually, he's going to judge you, you whitewashed wall. Now, whitewashed wall, what is that? We don't use that kind of expression. What is he really saying? In Ezekiel, this is a, this is a phrase that's is taken from the Old Testament in Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, the Lord tells him, you go ahead and say this to the false prophets in Israel at this time. Because they were seeing these false visions and these lying divinations. And that's what they are proclaiming to the people of Israel. They're trying to build this wall. And all you guys are coming here is putting this whitewash on top of it. But the day that the storm comes and the day that conflict comes, guess what? That wall is not going to stand. So what is in essence Paul saying? Because we don't use this expression saying, you appear to be one way. But you're not really who you say you are. It's a facade. It's a show. That is, in essence, what he's telling the priest, the high priest Ananias. You're not authentic. You guys have bought a house before. Some of you perhaps have bought a house. Some of you are looking to buy a house. If you ever looked in some of these, you can go to a house and you see, oh, wow, look at these beautiful walls. The paint, paint, paint covers a lot of things. And all of a sudden, you go to the house and then you're living there six months later and you're like, what is that? What is that stain coming from? And then you realize, wait, oh, the previous owners just fixed it up and patched it up so they can go ahead and sell the house and now you have a problem on your hands. There's no way you've knowing that. There's no way of you knowing that. It happened to us. My wife is shaking her head and like, yeah, it happened to us. And it's a pain. 
But guess what? That's exactly what Paul is telling them. He's telling Ananias, that's who you are. But here's the issue. Was Paul out of line in saying that? I mean, in many ways, it's, it's true what he's saying. Paul is not wrong in what he's saying. Why would he say that? And if you have commentators on this portion of, of the text, <laughs> ask three commentators, you're going to get three different answers. Because to them, this part is very confusing. Why would Paul say this? And they've come up with guesses. Or somebody, okay, well, one is that it's a Sanhedrin. It wasn't technically an official trial. So perhaps the, the, the uh, Ananias, the high priest, wasn't dressed in his, in his formal attire as he would if he were in a, an actual trial. So Paul didn't recognize him. That's one possibility. Another possibility. Well, it was very noisy. It's crowded. The Sanhedrin's there. It's at least 70 in that assembly, in that council. Who knows? Paul probably couldn't see him and didn't recognize him. That's another one. The third one, Paul's eyesight. Paul probably had very poor eyesight, and it's very possible that he probably couldn't distinguish who the high priest was, and therefore said this without knowing. Take your pick. You're not going to resolve it. All right? But that's not the point. The point isn't, why would Paul say this? What the point is, Paul doesn't justify his behavior. Do you see what Paul does here? Paul says, I didn't know. But he immediately does something. He quotes scripture. Scripture was the official arbiter. What do I mean by that? Scripture is one that convicted him. Paul could have easily said, I didn't know, and left it at that. But he doesn't. He says, I didn't know. But this is what Scripture says. Beloved, don't ever use I didn't know as an excuse for your sin. Don't ever use I didn't know as an excuse for your sin. Because you're still guilty at the end of the day. And you will have to answer for that to God one day. Now the beautiful thing is that we have Scripture. You may not know, well, what does Scripture say? And, and, and I know because it, get, it gets into this, even, even in our culture, even our culture with all the, with the sexual identity and the transgenderism and, and all, these, all these things that tend to come uh, arise in conversations, the Word of God is the Word of God. It doesn't change. It's infallible. I'm not the writer of it. I didn't write it. You, people may choose to go ahead and and say, well, yeah, it's, an, it, it, it's, a, it's a book written by men, and I've said this before, there's no way. People, can, you can try to convince me. There's just absolutely no way that the message of the gospel is the same. Written by different men. If you want to go ahead and say it's written by different men, fine. It's written by different men. All these books, and yet not a contradiction. It's the same message. Written over 1,500 years. How does that make sense? Because it's true. You may wish to go ahead and change it and twist it so it fits your narrative. I get that. Because who wants to, who wants to go ahead and live under this authority? Right? We don't like to live under authority. We want to be free people. We want to be the captains of our own ships. Kids, you know what that is. Right? Parents, you know when, they, when your child and it's pulling your hand when you're at the amusement park or then you're in front of a candy shop and all of a sudden they're pulling your hand. They just want to go ahead and do their thing. They don't have any money to buy anything. 
But they're pulling away like somehow they own the place and they just want to, let me go, let me go. Because even at a young age, it's already in us. This sense of autonomy doesn't begin when you're an adult. It's already in, in you since the moment you're born. Try carrying a, a child and a child pushing and, and carrying and don't, doesn't want to be carried. Even a baby does that. Because it's in us. It's in our system. We want to reject truth. We want to reject scripture. But Paul here reminds us, scripture is the official arbiter. At the end of the day, if someone comes to me as a pastor and says, yeah, but I don't agree with what you're saying. There's one way to solve this. And it's not going to be my philosophy versus your philosophy. It's not going to be your opinion versus my opinion. Well, I believe this. Well, yeah, well let me tell you, I believe this. I'm going to simply say, grab your Bible and let's go to Scripture. Because Scripture is the one that's going to determine it. Not my opinion. And not yours. You may still refuse to believe it. That's fine. But now that's on you. The ball's in your court now. Because Scripture doesn't allow for it. So, Remember that scriptures are official arbiter when it comes to these things. I don't know, or I didn't know, is not an excuse. But secondly, it's Jesus is our example. Contrast Paul's response when Jesus was struck. Remember Caiaphas? When Jesus was before the high priest at that moment was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas also ordered, uh, orders Jesus to get struck. Now, at least at that moment, Jesus was already being charged with blasphemy. But Jesus' response is very different. Jesus doesn't respond, you whitewash wall. He could have, and he would have been right to do so. But he doesn't. Even in that moment, the prophecy of Isaiah, like a sheep that goes before his shears, before the slaughter, he didn't say a word. Even to the end, when Christ had every right to do so, he doesn't. Because he's our example. Paul is not perfect. Paul really meant when he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He meant that. Paul wasn't saying, I know we hold Paul to this pedestal of, man, he's, he's this amazing saint, this amazing apostle. And praise the Lord, what he did, I don't think anybody else could do nowadays. Maybe there's other people doing it in, in other parts of remote, remotely. And during the persecution, maybe even worse. But what Paul did and endured what he endured for the gospel, and yet even Paul is not perfect. Even Paul is not perfect. And I know that if you were to go to heaven and ask him, oh, I want to have a conversation with Paul, he would probably tell you, it was never about me, it was about Christ. It was for him that I endured what I endured. What do we do in those moments? Do you become a Christian Karen? You know what I'm talking about? I know you guys have seen Don't Don't act like you guys don't know who Karen is. You know that Christian Karen, the lady that just came out and started yelling at people, get off my property, you know, with a, with a... We laugh and we say, oh, but guess what? Sometimes as Christians, we do that. We become nasty. And we, and, and, and we respond with this vitriol and this hatred when the, God's people should be the complete opposite. God's people should be the complete opposite because Christ is our, is our example. Not me, not your pastor. I'm more messed up. <laughs> I, showed you, I, I shared with you the story of what happened when I was playing soccer just, just a couple, uh, some time ago. I ain't perfect in any way. And neither are you. But Christ is. Look to him. And then, guess what's the other elephant in the room, verses 6 through 10? I know a guy's like, man, how long is this? We're almost there. 
Paul is perceptive. Paul is perceptive. Now, what's interesting here is that he knows that this room is divided. They always tell you, if you're ever an executive, I know Victor probably knows because you, you always go into a board meeting or if you're in a board of directors, you always, they always tell you, man, you scope out the room. You know who's there. You know exactly who's who. Or if you're going to go ahead and make a sales pitch to someone, you have to know who your audience is, right? And you kind of have to get a gauge of where they're at so that you can actually know what you're going to say and get a feel for the room that you're in. If it's very tense, then maybe you start off with something a little bit light, a little, you know, a little joke or something to kind of break the ice, right? So it just depends. Paul knew, okay, Pharisees, Sadducees, rooms divided. Does Paul play them? Does Paul play the Pharisees against the Sadducees and vice versa? Is Paul playing them? That's the other question is that commentators don't even know. Like, why would Paul say that? Like, he's just kind of using this to kind of wiggle his way out of this. Here's the issue. Paul knew he was a Pharisee. He just shared it not too long ago. He wrote it to the Philippians. Paul is not denying that he's a Pharisee. In no way, shape, or form. If on the, on, 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 to the contrary. Now, what some may say is that, yeah, but if Paul knew that, why, why doesn't Paul follow Christ's words in, in, in Matthew 5? You know, blessed are the peacemakers, for, for they will be the sons of God. It doesn't seem like he's being a peacemaker. It seems the quite opposite. He's actually looking to divide the, the room. Paul is just simply saying, guys, I'm on trial for this matter. For the, hope, for the resurrection. Now, Paul, of course, and Luke writes that here in, in the text. He gives us a little bit of, of understanding and background. He says, see, the Sadducees, the Sadducees do not believe in the afterlife. For them, the Pentateuch was it, and that was all. The first five books of the, uh, of the Old Testament, that was it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in the afterlife. They believed in it. They say, hey, this could be legit. And how do we know this? Well, think of one Sadducee in Scripture that came to know Christ. Think of one. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. If you read John 3, and you're going to see that Nicodemus comes, he's a Pharisee, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Because for the Pharisee, it was plausible. It was possible that the resurrection could have happened. For them, on the contrary, it's like, but... I'm not so sure you have to convince me, but it's possible. For the Sadducee, it wasn't. They would have had to abandon all that they believed in order to believe the resurrection. And that is just simply not... Now, I'm not saying that, it's, that God couldn't change their heart. Of course, He could have. John Stott puts it this way. He says, As Jesus Himself said, the reason why they were wrong was that they knew neither of God's word nor God's power, speaking of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe God's word nor his power. Paul was a Pharisee, however, not only in the sense of his parentage and education, but also in the sense that he shared with Pharisees the great, tra- the great truth and hope of the resurrection on account of which he was on trial for. So, in other words, Paul is saying, I know what you Pharisees think. I was there. I know exactly what you believe. But to me, the resurrection happened. You can't convince me otherwise. So, 
If you want to be honest, I don't think Paul was playing the Pharisees against the Sadducees. He was just simply saying, guys, this is where we're at. This is why I'm in trial. You want to know why I'm on trial? And in chapter 24, by the way, in the next chapter, he's going to go ahead and explain it again. This is the reason why. It was the hope of the resurrection. That's why they were holding me to trial. Now, why is this particularly important? Why is the resurrection important? Because the resurrection, beloved, is central to your faith. The cross is necessary, but it doesn't end at the cross. You have to continue, and there's a resurrection, and the hope of the resurrection. I mean, this is what Jesus promised, right? Where I am going, you'll be with me. What does that mean? Because there's a resurrection that will take place. Jesus rose from the dead. There were many that were crucified, but none have risen from the dead. There's only one in history that rose from the dead, and that was Jesus. And that is why to our faith, the resurrection is crucial. You cannot be called a Christian. You can't call yourself a child of God and not believe in the resurrection. They're not compatible. Wayne Grudem, I think, does a fantastic job in describing why the resurrection is so significant. The doctrine of the resurrection. And this is what he says. Resurrection has doctrinal significance for these three reasons. Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. 1 Peter 1.3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What has He called you to be born again through? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is why the resurrection is important. But not just for your regeneration, but also Christ's resurrection ensures your justification. What do I mean by that? Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 He was raised for our justification. Do you see what's happening? Not just regeneration, not just justification, but Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. You're not going to stay the way you are. I pray that the Lord maybe gives me a couple more inches when, I, when I'm on that side of heaven. And some of you that are really tall, He brings you down a little bit. I don't know what the perfect height is in heaven. I don't. But what I do know is that no matter what He gives us, it will be perfect. Second Corinthians 4.14 He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. He was the first fruits. You know why the first fruit is important in scripture? Why Jesus is described as the first fruit? It's the first fruit of the crop. That first fruit of the crop is the one that's, that, that, that tells the, the one that's harvesting, hey, this is a good harvest. And Jesus was the first fruit. And because he was good, that first fruit was good. By faith guess who also will be good? You and I. Because of Jesus, not apart from Him. And finally, to remind us, it's not just that we live in a fallen world, but to remind us that our Savior stands with us to fulfill our ministry and calling. And this will be short. There's great comfort in this verse. 
What do I mean by that? See, immediately we want to read this, and it's very easy to overlook something very important here. We go, our eyes immediately go, okay, what did Jesus say? Because we always want to hear what Jesus has to say. But what does he actually, what does the verse actually read? The verse says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said. This wasn't a thought that just came into Paul's mind. The Lord stood by him. Don't overlook that. The Lord stands with you and with me. Yes, even in your darkest hour. Even in those moments where you're, you're not so sure if you're going to make it. He stands with you. That is a great comfort, beloved. That if, you don't, if there's anything else that you remember here is that the Lord Jesus stands with you. Believer. Don't be discouraged. I know we want to immediately go, go to that, but we have to remember that. Edwin preached it a couple weeks ago. Did he not? 1 Thessalonians 5. He who's faithful will do it. Here's your example. This is your example. That even in that moment, Paul on that trial, it doesn't look like Paul is... And by the way, what we're going to see in a couple of verses is that they're going to go ahead and come with an ambush. The Jews are not... Stu- this is not the last part that we're going to see of, of Paul's uh, trial. They go on a hunger strike. We're not going to go... We're not going to eat again until Paul is dead. Read it in your text. If you want to get ahead. So, it's clear that the Jews are not just simply taking this very loosely. They're adamant about doing away with Paul. And yet the Lord is faithful. The Lord stands with Paul. And not only does He stand with Paul, He will complete the work that He started in Paul. He will be faithful to the end, to see Paul to the end of His ministry which is not too long from now. Take comfort in that, beloved. The Lord's presence is accompanied by words of comfort and encouragement. He tells them, take courage. And this courage is not like, hey, be brave. It's, it's, yes, have this boldness. Take courage. Be bold. Don't shrink away. Don't hide away. When the going gets tough, you don't get going. You stand firm and you trust in me. I'm with you. I'm not forsaking you. That's precisely the promise that Jesus made to the apostles in Matthew 28 when he tells them, go make disciples. What does he say? Go baptize them. But how does he end? He says, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you. It's not, I am aware of you. No, I am with you you very different sometimes we want to one we ask ourselves lord are you even aware he's not just more he's not just aware he's more than aware he stands with you so take comfort in that in hebrews 12 let us let us also lay aside every weight and i love this verse because this is one of the things that i when we were with our children growing up, they might not even remember. This was one of the key verses we would have them remember. And they used to say it by memory. I don't know if they can still. But because this is where it all boils down to. In your moment of trial, 
will you let aside, let us also lay aside every weight and which also clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. But this is the catch, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's not just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's that you will grow weary and faint-hearted in ministry. You will grow weary and faint-hearted where you're at and with the calling that the Lord has given you. But don't grow weary. The only way you don't grow weary is by keeping your eyes on Jesus and remembering everything that He endured for you. Remembering everything that He did for you. Think back upon the the, the crown of thorns that was placed upon His head. Remember the nails that He suffered and took upon His hands and upon His feet. And when you remember that, you say, how bad is this valley after all? Because at the end, He's there with you. And you can endure it, not on your own strength, but in Christ. And finally, remember that, you, that, he, that you're on the side of truth. Beloved, you are on the side of truth. You don't have to come up with it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Truth is already on our side. That's why the results are already guaranteed. So, don't worry about, ah, what, what does the latest poll say? Oh man, the, 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 the Christianity is just going down the drain people just believing every sorts of wishy-washy theology. Don't worry about it. You preach Christ and Him crucified. You become the message saying, this is who I was and this is who I am now in Christ. And let people determine. There's always going to be people. There's going to be a droves of people that are not going to, uh, they're going to mar the name of, of, of Christ. It's inevitable. Make sure that you're not one to do so. Take courage. Trials are not about us. We live in a fallen world. Remember, beloved, this is not your home. This is not your home. You weren't meant to live 200 and 300 years here on this side of heaven. If that were the case, then the Lord, the Lord would have extended our, our, our time span, right? I know, Chaz is like, oh, heck no. You weren't meant for this world. We were meant for a better world. A world that's to come. And you can take joy in that, knowing that that's what waits for me. Infinitely better. So much so, that no mind has conceived, nor ear has heard, nor eye has seen what God has prepared for those that love Him. If you want to throw in the towel, remember that. Remember that. Lord, I don't know what it looks like, but (laughs) it looks way better than what we have here. And I will endure whatever I have to endure for you because you endured it for me. Because if he hadn't, God's wrath will still be upon you and upon us. And Christ became our propitiation. In your darkest moments, remember that your Savior stands with you. Proclaim Jesus in your trials. Keep your eyes on your Savior. But most importantly, remember that your shepherd is still the shepherd in the valley of valleys. Your shepherd 
is still the shepherd in the valley of valleys. There's nothing that you can, no height nor depth, nothing on this side of heaven can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can bank on that. He will hold you. He will keep you. He, he, John tells us, all that you have given me, not one have I lost. Not one. You're not going to be the first. So take comfort in that. No matter what your trial is, He's got you. He's got you. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that You would comfort us with, with just knowing that You are the shepherd. And Your sheep know You by Your voice. Father, I just ask that I don't know if you're preparing us for something or who here is because these messages are very somber, Lord. They're very humbling. But Father, I pray that you would find us standing firm. That no matter what the darkest hour may be, that no matter what that darkest moment we may be encountering or how bad the storm may be, we will remember that you are with us. That you shed your blood for us. Help us to persevere. Help us to endure whatever situation we may be encountering in our families, at work, even in church perhaps. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified among your people. Any foundation here that where you're not the foundation, Lord, I pray that you would change that. Any home that is being built on quicksand and then on Jesus, the chief cornerstone. I pray that you would change that. Help us to see Christ and to treasure Him. Father, we need you. We need our Savior. Apart from Him, we're, we're done. But in Him, we have everlasting life. And in that, we rejoice. So come for your people now. Be with them. Guide them. Protect them. Be with our brother Edwin as he's been uh, preaching here uh, this morning as well uh, and the people that he's, um, he's been preaching to uh, and thinking also of, of, the, of the family that came last week, uh, Brother Henry and the, and the saints there in, in Dallas. We pray for them as well, that your word would go forth and Christ would be exalted and he would be proclaimed and, and, and honored and magnified, not just here in Cornerstone, but wherever your word is preached. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.